Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and today on the show, we are talking about gamete and embryo donation. Joining us today is a wonderful returning guest, Dr. Alan Penzias, chair of the ASRM Practice Committee. Dr. Penzias is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist at Boston IVF and an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. He specializes in all aspects of fertility care. Dr. Penzias, thank you so much for coming back on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. All right, fantastic. I know your time is always very valuable, so I'm going to jump right in. So for the audience, what are the primary uses for gamete and embryo donation? Thank you for that question. It's it's one that comes up and immediately people think of infertility. But we also want to acknowledge that donor gametes and donor embryos are not just meant for people who have infertility, but also to facilitate fertility. And in whom, why am I making the distinction there? Because infertility implies dis-ease, a problem, whereas fertility is very positive and on the upbeat side. So when we think about donor sperm, for example, typically we would think of a cis male patient who has azoospermia and is unable to impregnate his partner. We also think of a cis female patient or patients without a cis male intimate partner, and those individuals will also need to use donor sperm. In that circumstance, we're treating fertility rather than infertility. Likewise with the donor oocytes, a cis female patient who doesn't have oocytes either congenitally at birth through some process of disease or through the treatment of disease, either medical, radiation therapy, or surgical, may no longer have oocytes that are viable. So she would be somebody who might uh, wish to take advantage of donor oocyte or cis male patient or patients without a cis female intimate partners. And, you know, I'm using the terminology with, with, uh, with um, intention to acknowledge the LGBTQ persons who we take care of and uh, who are also stakeholders in this process who may need the donor gametes uh, to help them build families. Donor embryo has a parallel track and anyone who may need or wish to use a donor gamete also may choose to use a donor embryo that's already been formed by the union of sperm and egg by uh, an individual or couple uh, who no longer wish to uh, have children with that embryo, but wish to uh, allow that uh, opportunity to go to another. So let's focus then on, on, on donors in general. How many times should someone be able to donate gametes, at least according to the ASRM practice committee? And, and is the maximum time different for sperm and eggs or, or, or are they the same? Great question. So in our document, Repetitive Oocyte Donation uh, Committee Opinion, which was published in June of 2020 and is available right now uh, to our listeners on the ASRM website, the document addresses a consang- an inadvertent consanguinity question. And that is, what are the odds that two individuals who are both the product of a donor a gamete will form a union and then have a problem because of the fact that they didn't know inadvertently that they were from the same gamete source. The document states that older literature and previous ASRM guidance suggested maintaining a limit of no more than 25 pregnancies per sperm donor in a catchment area of 800,000 residences to minimize the risk of consanguinity. 
However, subsequent studies have commented that additional factors, including lifting of donor anonymity, genetic carrier screening, social changes in mobility and attitude, could even further reduce the risk of inadvertent consanguinity. So that recommendation of 25 pregnancies actually um, may be much less then, um, you know, the, the risk may be much less than the original calculations would suggest. When we think about the, the philosophy, then, it may be more important to limit the number of donations rather than the number of pregnancies that resulted from those. From a health consideration, health consideration standpoint, we know that OSI donors to collect and donate their gametes is a much more involved process than the process of sperm donation. And the recommendations that we make and that the ASRM makes in this document are really based on cumulative risks biologically, purely directed at health considerations of the oocyte donor. And we understand that during ovarian stimulation, there's a potential risk of complications, uh, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. There are some acute procedural risks that happen with, uh, with regard to undergoing an egg retrieval. So we state, uh, the SRM document states that in a single ovarian stimulation cycle, the donor's risk of a severe hyperstimulation syndrome, according to the medical literature, is approximately 1% to 2% per retrieval cycle, and the risk of an acute complication, including pelvic infection, intraperitoneal hemorrhage, ovarian torsion, and things of that nature, is approximately half a percent. When you look at those, you know, individual cycle low risks, but you sort of do a cumulative calculation over six donations, those risks add up for an individual to a roughly somewhere between 8 and 13 percent of a serious risk undergoing six, uh, six uh, egg retrievals. And we recognize you know, that that may vary among individuals. So the ASRM document, the recommendation that recommends no more than six donations is based on this uh, health risk calculation for a donor to be considered. And uh, we will link to the document that Dr. Penzias mentioned uh, in our show notes this week, as long as all the other uh, uh, publications by the practice committee. I, I'm curious, one of the big points that may have changed, and this, this is kind of what I want you to address, is this question of anonymity. That used to be a very big thing with donation. Is anonymous donation really anonymous anymore now that people can do genet- you know, genetic DNA testing at home, like 23andMe? Is anonymity really something that's still relevant? That's a really great question, and one that is causing ASRM to make a recommendation for a change in the terminology and the nomenclature. So for years, as you have uh, correctly pointed out, we had two categories of donors that we referred to. We referred to known donors, where the donor of the gamete and the recipient of the gamete were known to one another, their identities were disclosed, it was an open process, even if it was mediated through uh, through medical means and medical screening, but there was no expectation of anonymity at the time of the gamete donation. The uh, terminology that is now being recommended is that these individuals be referred to as directed or identified donors. Why the change in terminology from known, which is 
pretty obvious. Well, the uh, the ASRM uh, believes that in mirroring the FDA language of directed, there are some very specific things that the FDA regulates with regard to donors who don't know one another, a donor and recipient pair whom are not intimate partners and whose identity is not disclosed at the time of the donation. So the stringency of screening that is required where the two parties are unknown to one another at the time of the donation is not as high a stringency uh, when the donation parties are known. So mirroring the language of FDA for the known, we will now try to refer to those parties as directed or identified donors. That brings us to the real big topic of anonymous. So historically, anonymous donors were individuals who would donate a gamete with the expectation that their identity would not be disclosed to the recipient. And likewise, the recipient would not try to find out who the donor is. And neither the donor nor the recipient would try to ever find one another. And the reason is because the expectation of privacy on both parts and just the donation of the gamete was felt to be a selfless act and uh, was to be rewarded with anonymity. Over time, we always would counsel patients who are the recipients of, of a gamete donation and the donors themselves that to the extent that the law allowed, we as medical professionals, and I use that in a very broad sense, those who were party to this uh, process would try to protect anonymity to the extent permitted by law. And that was how things were for quite a long time. Fast forward to the current era where there is social DNA testing, where there is social media, where there is facial recognition software. So the expectation that we have for privacy and anonymity in our daily lives, and there are many examples, uh, you know, walking around with your handheld you know, mobile device, um, there's a lot that's known about you just by knowing where you are, your location. So there's a, a much of a, a different barrier to be faced with anonymity and the knowledge of your personhood and where you are. But social DNA testing is what you've referred to. 23andMe is just one example of a company. There are others, Ancestry.com, and many others, uh, commercial entities that are out there that offer social DNA testing, meaning you can send them a, a saliva sample, a swab, and get this into their databases. And what they will do is they will provide to you a report. And lots of people are leveraging this throughout the United States and, and abroad, figuring that they'd like to know about their historical ancestry and you know where their countries of origin are and, and a whole variety of different things that you can actually learn. What's interesting as well is that many of these social DNA testing companies also have an opportunity for you to link up with persons with whom you share DNA. So, for example, if I were to submit a saliva sample to one of these companies and one of my children were to submit a saliva sample and we were both opted in to the opportunity to identify with those who share DNA with us, we might each get an email saying, hey, you have, I would get an email saying you have somebody who we identify as could be your child. And my child might get a, an email saying, hey, we identify somebody who shares enough DNA with you that may be a parent. So that 
is a pretty striking thing if you're going into it with known intention. In the circumstance of where somebody has donated a gamete, and let's say that individual never chooses to submit their DNA to one of these public companies that does the social DNA testing, and the recipient of that gamete likewise does not submit any DNA, but the progeny of each of those two individuals, the donor who may never have submitted DNA and the recipient who may never, but their two children years later, each submit their DNA, unaware that there may be others with whom they share DNA. They then, if they have opted in in one of these services, all of a sudden get an email saying, hey, you share enough DNA with somebody else who may be a half-sibling. And that could lead to ultimately through, again, social media uh, and social aspects and a variety of other publicly available information, an unintentional disclosure, an unintentional, unintentional turning up of the identity of who that donor was and who the recipient of that donation is. So while we don't know what the actual incidence of this actually occurring is, the fact that this could happen, because it's very possible that somebody may choose to donate a gamete, they go in hoping that they, they're not disclosed at the time, they're not identified, they donate their gamete, everything goes well, they never hear another word, and it does truly remain that they never get contacted, and the recipient and their progeny never learn who the identity of that donor is. That is entirely feasible, but it may be the opposite, that downstream, that identity may come up. So to refer to these donors formally called anonymous as non-identified is going to be the language. We're going to be counseling, and many of us uh, that I know in our field already are, doing the counseling uh, of their both donors and recipients that the quote-unquote guarantee of anonymity can't be guaranteed just because there are these societal forces that have bridged a gap that we didn't uh, know could have happened uh, years and years ago. Or, but now that we do, we just counsel about it. And also we have, you know, it's, it's, I would imagine too, that a lot of the conversations become, you know, about protecting the practices too, right? I mean, how can you sign a waiver for something that you don't know will come back in the end uh, with these different testing sites and, and, and whatnot? Correct. And I think that the, you know, the most important takeaway message for those who are listening to this discussion is the following. If you are somebody who is planning to donate your gametes and you wish to do this and you feel very motivated, I think that as long as you are understanding of what the possibilities are, it's all about transparency and going into it, knowing that the intention at the time of the donation is that these relationships, that your identity will not be disclosed now, but could be discoverable later on. Many individuals will say, you know, I'm willing to take that risk. It's not that big a deal to me, and I'm happy to go ahead and, uh, and do so. There are some identity disclosure contracts in some sperm donation programs where while the identity of the donor is not known to the recipient at the time of the donation, there is a potential clause in the contract that would allow if there is a pregnancy that results and if that child born of that donation chooses to seek out the identity of that individual of who was the donor of the sperm, that that may be possible. 
And um, so that is a specific type of arrangement. It's contractual. It's known by both parties at the outset. And that's a little bit of a variation on the theme because the initial expectation is that it will be non-identified at the time, but there could be an anticipated identity disclosure later on. But everybody knows that up front. What we're talking about is those who had planned to come in and say, you know what, I only want to do this if I can be anonymous and my identity never revealed. For those individuals, you know, my comment to them even years ago before the social DNA testing was that I I was very careful, and, and many of us in the field are, to say that the intention at the time is for anonymity to the extent permitted by law. And while None of us can really know, you know, well, we can hope that the laws that had protected, quote unquote, anonymity in the past might have stayed unchanged. That could have changed in the future. So my counseling to somebody back then, as now, would be that there was really never any way to absolutely guarantee anonymity. You could try to protect it to the extent permitted by law. We can now try to protect it to the extent permitted by the actions of others who engage in social DNA testing. But the uh, the barrier to identity disclosure is a little bit looser now because beyond just legislative intent, there can be these other external forces that uh, cause identity. And similarly, for those who are seeking to use a donor gamete and to have their own family as a result, there's been a very long-standing position based on data and and well-being uh, from our mental health professionals group that uh, there should be transparency and disclosure to the children. They should always grow up knowing that they were the product of their parent and or parents and a donor involved because the disclosure of that fact very early in a child's life so that they can grow up knowing that they that they were the product of this is something that would be native to them, and it would never be something traumatic to be discovered later on. But uh, whether that identity, so if the intent was on the recipient side, also to receive this gamete, to have a child, to never have anybody discover that that child, even the child himself, is the product of a donation, again, that can't be guaranteed to the recipient either, just in the same way as uh, as with the donor. And it's really all about counseling. I think that the, the net comment that I would make, I know it's been kind of a long-winded road uh, that I've been uh, sort of describing in great detail, but what we're really thinking about nowadays is transparency. The change in the nomenclature from known and anonymous to directed slash identified or non-identified is just another means of assisting us in the counseling of both donors and recipients that this process exists, that this process has resulted in thousands, if not millions of children being born and families coming to be as a result of the donation process. And we as a field are are very much in favor of of people being able to build their families who who need to use or wish to use donor gametes. So we would hope that this will be with us for a very long time. And it's just a matter of changing uh, changing the expectations, not saying that there's a guarantee or not saying that this will always happen 
or never happen, but that it's just open to the possibility. And as society has accepted many things and evolved over time, I think that this will just become another point in counseling and really will um, will allow people to continue to move on with their lives and uh, service donors and uh, and have access to donor gametes and be able to build families, which is what uh, ASRM is all about. I encourage all of our listeners to please click on the link in the show notes to read this work by the practice committee. If you can't find it there, please go to www.asrm.org, where all of our practice committee's papers can be found. Dr. Penzias, thank you again so much for being able to, to come on the show today to talk about this. My pleasure. Please rate and subscribe to the show on Gosh, where are we? Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasting media. Until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.